0: How long it takes a diamond to be created? Adam asked a reporter during a meeting. Half a million to four million years. I love that analogy. To make something really precious you have to apply a lot of pressure. This quote from Billion Dollar Loser, the epic rise and fall of Adam Newman and WeWork not only sums up the narrative and zeitgeist of this startup unicorn but also the period of time in the early 2000s that enabled and gave birth to this once high-flying company. Hi, this is Jonathan Marks, and welcome to the On Your Marks Book Review podcast. This week I read the Adam Newman and WeWork story, with a mixture of fascination, amazement, and just a tinge of revulsion. The author, Reeves Wiedemann, is a master storyteller. He is a contributing editor at the New York Times Magazine, and has written for the New Yorker, the New York Times Magazine, Rolling Stone, and Harper's, among others. Billion Dollar Loser is his first book, and it's an absolute doozy. Every so often a perfect story comes around with a cast of characters and a narrative that almost defies belief. When you put that into the hands of a seasoned writer, you have absolute magic. And this book met all those criteria. It was a page-turner that read more like a thriller fiction than a non-fiction expose. The story unfolds chronologically and I could hardly wait to see what each new chapter brought. Wiedemann has done excellent research, including first-person interviews with Newman and many others in his inner circle, as well as acting the investigative journalist and gathering more data to support the book. Sadly, the genre, failed unicorn entrepreneur burns through billions of dollars of investor money with a seemingly credible business idea, is neither new nor underpopulated. The world is increasingly awash in venture capital funding, all looking for the next Google or Facebook or Twitter And this investor FOMO often leads to smart people making crazy bets with other people's money. What intrigued me is how an uneducated Israeli immigrant peddling his brand of somewhat average baby clothes in New York City ended up as co-founder and CEO of the second largest co-working space in the world, having raised billions of dollars in investment from some of the biggest and best-known firms around the world, including Benchmark Capital, SoftBank, JPMorgan Chase and Goldman Sachs and many others. At the start of the book, Wiedemann recounts how Newman burst into an immigration lawyer's office in New York, demanding help with his expiring student visa. He was at the time enrolled at Baruch College in New York, although never completed his studies. Somehow, with the help of references from everyone from his rabbi to university professors, he is awarded an O-1A visa, something reserved for, and I quote, individuals with an extraordinary ability in science, education, business or athletics, end quote. As the lawyer processing his application said at the time, a Nobel Prize pretty much gets you in. Well, from his baby clothes business that never really takes off, a chance encounter brings him to a building in the Brooklyn Dumbo district. Dumbo is an acronym for the Down Under the Manhattan Bridge Overpass Area. And he's here to visit an Israeli friend at a small architectural firm. And there he meets Miguel McKelvey, soon to become his co-founder at WeWork. Newman's kibbutz upbringing in Israel and McKelvey's background in a matriarchal community that took him from Taos, New Mexico, to Eugene, Oregon, gave birth to the idea of a community of startups and freelancers, already being partially addressed by a few trendy co-working spaces around the world. But the pair convinced a landlord in the area to lease them a floor in his building and undertake the renovation, and with that launched Green Desk, a co-working space with butcher block tables, cheap chairs and patchy Wi-Fi. It was such a great success, in fact, that the landlord actually bought them out. And now with cash in hand, the pair set out to look for their next opportunity. They found a building in New York's Canal Street for their trendy co-working vision. Input from a friend had given them the name WeWork, but with no credibility or pedigree, few landlords were particularly interested in taking a risk on the pair. Until a wealthy Hasidic property investor and developer met them, he asked them what WeWork was valued at. Now bear in mind they had no business to speak of, no property, no track record and no business plan. Newman replied confidently forty five million dollars. Schreiber, the investor, didn't bat an eyelid and immediately committed fifteen million to the Canal Street project. And this set the ball rolling. We work was off, and as the months rolled by Newman gained confidence, momentum, and even some credibility. He clearly talked a good game, spinning stories to landlords, investors, and tenants alike. Mostly pie-in-the-sky stuff, but amazingly they were believed. In fact, not so much believed as gobbled up. He acquired legendary properties in New York, including the Woolworth Building. He and McGill understood the market and a combination of exposed brickwork, wooden floors, free coffee and beer, and the energetic startup vibe was, as Wiedemann says, like aesthetic kitty litter for the newly displaced workforce, sceptical of artifice and craving authenticity. By now, Newman had met his soon-to-be wife, Rebecca Paltrow, cousin to the actress Gwyneth Paltrow. After their first social engagement, Rebecca said to Adam, You, my friend, are full of shit. Every word that comes out of your mouth is fake. You're obviously broke. I'm not broke, said Adam. I'm an entrepreneur. Rebecca's story is deeply interwoven with that of her husband. The two seem to be operating well together and certainly fed off one another's delusions. At one point, Rebecca starts a kid's school called Grow, building on the WeWork brand. On her website profile, she lists her education as, and I quote, having studied with His Holiness the Dalai Lama and with Mother Nature herself, end quote. The WeWork rocket ship is fueled with plenty of cheap capital, and Newman and his team are leasing property wherever they can find it. Actually, by now, landlords are approaching Newman, realising that he is not only building a substantial empire, but that he is well-funded, And has tapped into a growing trend worldwide. While Newman plays the visionary CEO to a T, largely ignoring the economics and the reality of running such a complex business, McKelvey keeps the business operating from day to day. WeWork quickly becomes a part of the growth at all cost movement that gave rise to such spectacular failures as Theranos and the Fire Festival. It came as no surprise to me that Billy McFarlane, the grifter who gave the world Magnesis and Fire Festival, at one point had taken up residence in the New York City WeWork office. At one point, while WeWork and Newman are considered masters of the universe, Adam has a meeting with Starbucks founder Howard Schultz, a greatly admired entrepreneur, leader and manager who advises him to slow down. Citing his own experience with Starbucks achieving massive global growth, he suggests that he first iron out his systems and problems and controls before growing so fast. Sharing the meeting with his team on the private jet flight back to New York, a staff member asks Newman what he thought about the advice. Fuck that, said Newman. What Newman was enacting was what Reed Hoffman calls blitzscaling. I had the displeasure of reading Hoffman's book some months back and was horrified at the model of growth without regard for resources. As an academic, I sadly get to read a fair amount of drivel as part of my day-to-day work, but I must admit Hoffman's work ranks pretty much near the top of the pile. And so the book unfolds, detailing each new location opening and round of capital raised. WeWork goes on to raise a series G round, not a common thing in the VC and private equity world. And by the time SoftBank weighs in with check sizes that are all in the billions, Newman appears unstoppable. Dozens of spin-off brands emerge, though are never fully realised. We live, we bike, we learn, we eat, we move, and even a We Mars is mooted after a short meeting between Musk and Newman. During this period, and I think largely leading to the demise of Newman as CEO, sorry, spoiler alert for those who are not familiar with the story, Adam becomes increasingly esoteric and embroiled in his kooky view of the world of work and how basic economic systems function. Yes, he was good at raising capital and certainly very adept at spending it. But as Francis Frey, a Harvard Business School professor, says, companies often get into trouble when they begin to wobble in one of three areas, authenticity, logic, and empathy. I think we were suffered in all these areas. At some point in the book, this quote by George Bernard Shaw popped into my head, and I quote, the reasonable man adapts himself to the world, the unreasonable one persists to adapt the world to himself, therefore all progress depends on the unreasonable man, end quote. And I just wondered, maybe Newman is an unreasonable man, and someone therefore, at least according to George Bernard Shaw, who has helped us all progress. And then I came across this quote in the book from Newman. Once again, I quote, We work as just a tool. My life's work is to prepare for the Messiah. End quote. In and of itself, not really an issue, I guess. But when taken against the private jet and multiple houses in the Hamptons, apartments in New York and eventually LA, I guess that preparing for the Messiah is something that needs opulence and access. I don't think anyone decries successful entrepreneurs the accoutrements of wealth, but to package it up in some kind of quasi-religious mystical mission feels hypocritical, in the absolute extreme. This raises the sense of revulsion I felt in reading the book. Yes, Newman had a great vision and the moxie to make it happen, but people who should have known better, the adults in the room, indulged this kind of behavior with only one goal in mind, to get filthy rich. For all the talk of building communities, or as Newman would say, the first physical social network, or the we over over I era, really this was just about money. So by the end, when Newman is finally removed as CEO by the board, I actually felt relieved. At least those who should have acted sooner had done so, even if only just to protect their money. I felt a mild sense of vindication when the pumped-up valuation of the business was soundly rejected by the market at the much-hyped IPO. Barely 10% of the estimated value was realized when the market had a chance to really scrutinize the business. Even Newman's co-founder had enough by now and had left. Well, so what does a disgraced CEO do after this episode? Well, you get a billion-dollar golden parachute, and then you move on to your next venture, again in real estate, and this time with lead funding from none other than Andreessen Horowitz, the venerable Silicon Valley VC firm. I think this is unlikely to be the last time we hear from or about Newman, He's a survivor of the first order and is just what investors look for, somebody just sociopathic enough to turn their millions into billions. Interestingly, Newman had found his guide and mentor in Massasson from SoftBank, who in 2010 had presented his, if you can believe it, 300-year vision for his company. In it he outlines about how the earth has gone through five great extinctions, and like plants and animals that have adapted and survived, so do companies and entrepreneurs. True visionaries, said Son, don't let disaster derail their ambitions. They survive, and they adapt. Well, so maybe there's a lesson in this book after all. For those wanting a dramatised version of the WeWork story, I highly recommend checking out We Wrecked, a mini-series available on Apple TV. It's well worth the time, and while some licence has been provided in terms of the flow of actual events, I think it's pretty faithful to the original story. In the week ahead, I'm coming closer to home and I'm reading the book, The Boy Who Harnessed the Wind, the story of William Kamkwamba. This is a wonderful and hopeful story of innovation, bricolage and social entrepreneurship from Malawi. Please keep an eye out for that next Tuesday. And for the rest, thank you so much for taking the time to listen to my podcast. And I wish you all a productive and wonderful week ahead.